today on Ag News Daily. And I don't know, you know, I think uh, just in the last few days, we've we've had reasons on a chart to get a little bit worried about the corn market. Certainly the wheat market continues to slide lower and just can't find a bottom. Um, and then even the soybeans having kind of a reversal lower here on the Monday. December 5th, first Monday of December, a Market Monday episode here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner Winteroff joined by Delaney Howell. Today's episode is brought to you by Mystic Lubricants. For a look at their full line of products, visit mysticlubes.com. That is M-Y-S-T-I-K, lubes.com. How's Delaney? I'm good, Tanner. I had a great weekend. I went holiday Christmas shopping. It was quite the experience. It was like on a bus and they took you around to lots of different little central Iowa cities and I put my Christmas decorations up. So I'm ready for Christmas. Right. Was there booze on the bus? That was the topic of discussion Friday. There was actually booze on the bus. So it was made for a pleasant day. Absolutely. That sounds like probably the only way I would be willing to Christmas (laughs) shop. I'm very blessed in my household. I don't have to do very much that. You know, there weren't any men on the, on the trip. I'm not surprised by that, but yikes, we got to get that fixed. Got to get, let us have some fun on a party bus to go shopping. That's probably a good thing to get a bunch of guy friends together. I tell you where, yes, it's probably better than taking a cruise ship out into the Atlantic ocean right now. It seems like even though hurricane season is technically over, which ended November 30th, like Eric Snodgrass told us, They are now monitoring a disturbance in the central Atlantic Ocean. This potentially could develop into an out-of-season subtropic depression, which then again, if it includes increases, it becomes a tropical storm, which maybe becomes a hurricane. There's a large area of low pressure delaying right now centered over the central subtropical Atlantic, about 750 miles northeast of the Caribbean islands. That's producing some disorganized showers and thunderstorms here as we record today on Monday. That's in the warm part of the ocean. Now the Arctic is continuing to push more of its cold weather down into Canada and the northern United States. The Arctic air is coming through another polar vortex. It's plunging south across the region, looking at some low temperatures and record low wind chills, extreme cold hitting most of Canada and sneaking into the northern part of the United States for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. However, this looks like it will be a fast-moving storm, and the cold should be short-lived. So that's good news, Delaney. Be a good day or week to stay inside, Tanner. Yeah, I think uh, it would be all right, or a good day to go out and see friends in the warmness of an establishment. <laughs> yes, you're all about the establishment today. You must be gearing up for Farmer to Farmer, which we'll both be at this week. So listeners, if any of you will be at Farmer to Farmer, hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I think you'll be podcasting there, Tanner, for Farm for Profit. We'll be obviously doing the Ag News Daily Podcast, and we'll be floating around. Absolutely. Come out and see us. But Tanner... Another area that's getting a lot of weather finally has been Brazil. They got quite a bit of rainfall in most of the top crop growing areas over the weekend, keeping crops in good conditions across most crop growing regions. Uh, The earliest of soybean fields should reach maturity for harvest here over the next several weeks in Mato Grosso. 
So harvest will be for other areas, not until another six to eight weeks out here. But what that means is that Brazilian products will be coming on the pipeline soon, Tanner, meaning we may not see exports as strong as they have been. So it'll definitely be a topic to touch on today with Ted Seifert when we get into market discussion. That would be a good question for us to ask. It looks like oil prices would be something else we should discuss because oil followed the U.S. stock market lower today, had some private sector or some service sector information released today, and worries are coming about that the Federal Reserve may continue an aggressive policy tightening path. I know we reported last week that they may be only looking at a half percent increase, but based upon the data that came out today, it was uh, inflation unexpectedly higher. The U.S. services industry also reported that activity unexpectedly picked up with employment rebounding, offering more evidence that there is momentum in the economy as it continues to brace for this projected recession, Delaney, but we haven't seen a lot of recessionary news coming out of the market or coming out of the reports that came today. Of course, this caused oil and stock part, stock prices to fall. It looks like uh, as you talk Brent crude futures, they were down 56 cents a barrel today. West Texas intermediate crude fell 77 cents. So it'll be interesting to see what Ted has to say about the world's economy and oil demand. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, bigger pieces at play here impacting the economy, Tanner. And so on Friday, we did officially see President Biden sign into legislation, the rail legislation that officially stops that from taking place. Of course, Congress voted that through, but we did see the president sign off on that on Friday. We also got word over the weekend, Tanner, that top European Union officials are not very happy about the new Inflation Reduction Act, and it has the nations up in arms. Europe said that they are bracing for confrontation with Washington, D.C. over this act, saying that the way that it is designed right now um, makes the act seem like a bigger than thy neighbor scheme and is ultimately designed to lure investors away from Europe is what they are claiming. So while the EU welcomes the new commitment to energy transition, they fear that this $430 billion Inflation Reduction Act will unfairly disadvantage their companies in the EU compared to those companies in the United States. So They're definitely having lots of um, words to say about it, and I bet that this will be in the news for quite some time as they continue to have discussions with folks in D.C. about it. Yeah, I don't feel that's an accident. I mean, clearly this was uh, an act put together to bolster the economic status of the United States, and if that means sending less business overseas, whether it's to the EU or not, I think that's just the reality of the plan our legislature had put together. Before I get into my next story, let's take a break here for a message from our sponsor today. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Well, Delaney, we may not be sending 
more dollars overseas, as you stated in that article, but we do know now how many acres of land are owned by countries outside of the U.S. Obviously, this research was done uh, by the USDA and put into an article here on AgWeb for us. Coming out of the conversation earlier this summer, we reported on 300 acres of North Dakota farmland, raising eyebrows that were going to be sold for a 2.6 million dollar price tag to a Chinese company. Now that that brought attention to how many acres are owned outside of the United States, the number's not as big as one would expect. So, of the 37.6 million acres of American farmland that is foreign owned. Delaney, which country do you think owns the most? Oh, uh, China or Canada? You're correct on the Canada guess. China is actually really far down the list. It only accounts for 1% or 352,000 of those 37.6 million acres. Canada at 32%, the Netherlands at 13, Italy at 7, the UK at 6, and Germany at 5. So it did state here that even though uh, we don't want to shed any lightness on the topic of not allowing foreign countries to own farmland or real estate in general. It does show here that a very small portion of the United States ground is foreign owned. The largest category is forest land. And up until 2019, pasture land had more acres foreign owned than crop ground. But since 2019, crop ground now nearly doubles the acres of pasture land owned by foreign countries. So quite interesting here. It'd be interesting to see what legislatures put together, but this data was collected, obviously, to make sure that we are monitoring the ownership of our country to those investors from outside of the U.S. Yeah, I've never really been able to grasp why the U.S. is one of the only countries that does not have legislation to block foreign investments. But not sure if legislation will get put into place, at least at a national level, but we've definitely seen some states coming in to work on legislation for that, Tanner. But switching tracks here just a little bit, JDS has officially announced that they have reached an agreement to acquire certain assets from Tri-Oak Foods. Apparently, Tanner, I didn't realize this, Tri-Oak Foods and JBS have been long-term business partners. Since about 2017, JBS has been Tri-Oak's exclusive customer to source hogs and other proteins, a market hog specifically, though, since 2017. And now this new move here is likely to set off alarm bells on Capitol Hill and anti-competitive watchdogs who have warned that the meat packing industry has become too consolidated, but JBS announced that they are buying certain assets, did not say which assets they have purchased or acquired under this agreement or for how much money they have paid to acquire certain assets, Tanner. But by all likelihood here, it seems that some sort of anti-competitive measure will be filed against them so that a more uh, stringent measures put in place before this final acquisition does go through. Interesting. I had not seen that article today. Delaney, let's pause one more time for a message from our sponsor today. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. 
They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Well, thank you again to our sponsor for today, but I'm out of news. Delaney, do you have anything left before markets? I have just one more quick headline here, Tanner, before we hop over to chat markets, and that's corn prices are continuing to fall at Ukrainian ports due to the slowdown in ships coming to be filled as a lot of shippers are still nervous um, heading into that Black Sea region. But port facilities are filling with grain. Fewer ships are coming into the harbor, and we've seen a really big slowdown in those Ukrainian ports, making Ukrainian grain less attractive to buy. We've also seen some electrical blackouts that have contributed to problems at Ukrainian ports that I don't think anyone really has been reporting on up until this point, Tanner. And I think about 90%, they're saying 90% of the country is still in the dark after some recent airstrikes. However, exports are also having, like I said, they're an issue to get out of the country, which has really pushed the price of Ukrainian grain down significantly for local growers. Yeah, Delaney, who'd have thought we'd be talking about lower corn prices in the middle of a war zone? Yes, nah, certainly not. I did not. But there are, seems fresh challenges for those growers every day, Tanner. But for U.S. growers today, there were a few challenges in commodity prices finishing in positive territory. We saw March corn close five and three quarter cents lower today at 640 and a half. March, January soybeans down just a quarter three quarters of a cent at 14.37 and three quarters. March Chicago wheat down 22 pennies today at 7.39. And hopping over to take a look at livestock on the day, we finished in mixed territory for live cattle. February live cattle closed a nickel lower at a buck 55.82. January feeders added a dollar 32 and a half to close at 183.77. And December lean, excuse me, February lean hogs added a dime to close at 90.52 and a half. Dinner, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Ted Seifrin. Well, folks, we are chatting to Ted Seifrin at the Ted Spread on Twitter and working with Zayner Ag Hedge. Ted, it's been a little while since we had you on, but we're excited to chat markets today, even though it feels like it's slowing down here toward the end of the year. Yeah, you know, Delaney, a lot of times we will get into this sort of holiday time frame where things get a bit quiet. You know, a lot of the big uh, fund managers and so on and so forth uh, will kind of step away if they're happy with their performance for the year. Um, and, yeah, we just kind of drift. It's also sort of the time of year where we are watching South American weather, but it's also, you know, kind of earlier in their season. Uh, we know that uh, – uh, a little bit later on is when the, the weather is the absolute most important for them. Uh, so, yeah, we just we kind of hit this sort of vacuum. Now, in years in the last few years, we've actually had some fairly active trade, uh, especially as we get closer to the, the Christmas holiday. Uh, and I'm wondering if that might be the same thing again this year. You have some things starting to kind of develop uh, on some of the charts after, you know, a very long, extended sideways period of trade. Um so I, I don't know. I don't think we can really sleep on this this time frame. You know, I, I talk to a lot of producers, and I know 
that one of the biggest gripes that we've had this past year was, you know, booking input costs for next year at really expensive rates. Now that's kind of subsided a little bit, but you know, there's a lot of inputs that have been booked at high rates. The problem with that is that I don't think a lot of guys have done much on the way of marketing for next year because these sideways markets have, have really complete, um, lulled people into complacency. But the fact of the matter is if, if we're paying high priced input costs, we really need to have these high priced outputs too, right? We have to take advantage of the, the, the good prices that are on board. And, and I don't know, you know, I think, uh, just in the last few days, we've, we've had reasons on a chart to get a little bit worried about the corn market. Certainly the wheat market continues to slide lower and just can't find a bottom. Um, and then even the soybeans having kind of a reversal lower here on the Monday. Uh, and not being able to sustain trade over some very key moving averages. I, there's a lot of kind of red flags popping up right here. So I, I think at best, um, you know, we, we may continue the sideways trade. Maybe we're just, you know, forging a little bit uh, into the lower end of the range. But I, there has to be some very real concern that, you know, if if prices were to slide into the spring, what does that do, you know, for our for our bottom line, especially if we've, you know, booked these really high price inputs? Yeah, I was going to ask you about wheat falling and not really being able to find a bottom. But I'm glad that you touched on that. It reminds me a little bit about 2013. Do you, is there any talks amongst traders about a, a similar year to where corn just kind of slid into the planting season? You know, you, you, there's been a lot of comparisons made from a macroeconomic style, um, standpoint of 2008, although I really disagree that this is another 2008 type scenario. This is a very unique situation because of pandemic and stimulus. And, and we didn't have an over uh, heated economy going into that necessarily, uh, but we created some bubbles with stimulus. And so a very different situation. But the one thing I will that I do keep coming back to on. Um, 2008 is that wheat was the market that broke about two months before everything else did. It was sort of the canary in the coal mine. And you can say a similar thing about what you've got going on, you know, from 2013 to now. So, yeah, I, I mean, you watch this this just march to lower lows uh, in wheat that we've seen, you know, two dollars over the past couple of months even. Uh, and you have to worry that's how that's that's going to go for the row crops at some point. And really, I mean. You know, fundamentally speaking, we have some things to still be bullish about, especially in the form of South American weather, Argentinian weather in particular. Uh, but we are also say, you know, our, our, our corn crop last year wasn't as big as it had been and whatever. But the fact of the matter is that we are at the historically high end of prices. Yeah, not record highs, but, you know, we're up there. And the old adage of high prices are eventually the cure for high prices. Well, that is a thing. You know, I mean, because what does it do? What it does to demand and what it does to bring out as much supply as possible. Um, you really just, you can't imagine that, you know, 640, 650 corn is the new norm. This is not a new plateau, right? Something will change. And we've spent a lot of time kind of throwing some, some relatively bullish things at this market without being able to go higher in the case of corn. So you worry, you worry if the, if the bullish news isn't making us go higher, then what's a, what, what sort of bearish news or even maybe just lack of bullish news before we had lower? So yeah, you know, I think we're on some real thin ice. Just let's not look at this as being, you know, oh, holiday period, nothing's going to happen. It'll be fine. We'll look at it again in January. I think that's a real bad way of thinking right now. So Ted, 
you mentioned a little bit about prices marching lower. We've saw, seen a key reversal today in soybeans, and we're heading into the end of the year when, as you mentioned, we're going to have some higher inputs next year. So what do growers need to be looking at or executing specifically to plan ahead for 2023? Well, should they be kicking themselves if they don't have some forward sales made? Yeah, I mean, look, you still have some really nice prices on the board. You know, December 23 corn uh, is just, you know, less than five cents below six bucks. And I know that's not, you know, 740 or 780 or, you know, what we've had some some shots at some really good prices, you know, for old crop. But, you know, historically speaking, it's still a really very good crop, right? So I, I think at this point, you really do want to be making those sales, even though we're not at the high, quote unquote. Uh, I've really been urging people to be, be between 35 and 65%. I know it's a wide range, but, you know, a lot of that kind of depends on where you're located and how comfortable you are uh, with those sizes of your production. But really, a lot more advanced as far as our new crop sales this year than we have been in years past. And the other thing about sideways markets is that brings option premiums down. So, you know, calls in particular are a lot cheaper than they were this time last year or the year before. You can reown, you can do reownership strategies that, you know, you're, you're selling the board or flat pricing corn. Um, you have all the downside protection that you need, but then you can come in fairly cheaply and reown some upside potential if that's what you want. Although I am not twisting guys' arms to do that like I had been in, in the last few years. Uh, I think this time is a bit of a different situation and, and we're already looking at some really very good prices. And my main concern here is the downside. And, and, you know, for the last couple of years, hedging strategies, you know, we haven't really needed them. I mean, yeah, some guys have been able to get, you know, the very high end of the range. Other guys have been in a little bit of lower range, but they've all been relatively very good prices. This year is a different year. I, I, I really worry that, you know, in the next few months, there is going to be a, a sizable change, not just in the grains markets, but really markets as a whole. And, and again, I don't know how long we can hold prices up at the higher end of the range. Over time, that always seems to change. Yeah, it is going to be a very different year. I've heard a lot of a lot of industry professionals that are concerned about those who didn't market ahead of time getting rewarded in the last couple of years, and that may not be the case going forward. We've reported on a couple of things today from Chinese economic standards to the U.S.'s potential Fed rate hike again, pushing crude and stocks lower. What are you seeing between the Chinese and U.S. economies doing for these markets? Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of, for the most part, I think we, we are on some rather thin ice. You know, I mean, you look at the Fed saying that, you know, maybe it's time to kind of moderate a little bit. But then you see a jobs number that's pretty supportive. You don't have a big flush out happening really in, in stocks at the moment. And there's a, the dollars come off its highs. So, you know, the green light is there for them to continue to put the pedal to the metal. So I'm really conflicted on what I think the Fed might be doing here on this next announcement. Um, but over time, I still think that they are really wanting to push prices or uh, push rates higher. Uh, they are on the warpath to fight inflation. I think a lot of that work may have already been done, but in the numbers that they look at, it doesn't seem that way. So I'm worried that the Fed is going to continue to push higher than what they really maybe need to. Uh, and that would have a very big impact, not just on commodities, but, you know, obviously the economy as a whole. Um, so I worry about that. And then as far as China is concerned, Wow, it really depends on the week, right? I mean, one week they are locking down more, other weeks they are reopening and protests and so on and so forth. 
Um, but I don't get the feeling this is all done in, in China. I mean, you look at the numbers there and it doesn't look good and they have taken a very aggressive stance towards things. So I don't know. You look at the corn exports, uh, you know, soybean exports are better, but you look at corn exports and, and you don't really get that there's a sense of urgency in the world. And that's confusing, especially when you look at Argentinian weather and you look at, um, you know, vegetative index and you say, wow, Argentina, you know, uh, driest uh, start to a growing season since like 1980 or 1979. There should be a lot of global end users that are really concerned and aggressively buying corn for, you know, later season delivery um, with the concern that it's not going to be there in Argentina and Brazil. But they're not. So that's saying either they're not terribly concerned about the weather in Argentina yet, or it's saying that they really don't have the need. And and unfortunately, I'm a little worried that that second part is uh, the latter is is true. And if that is the case, well, then we are sitting at some uh, some price levels that aren't really justified because, uh, you know, our balance sheet will change dramatically if those export sales aren't there. So, Ted, we also have a WASD report coming out later this week. Anything to be looking for there? You know, this December report, Delaney, is is usually uh, a punt, you know, because we know that the January report um, <clears throat> is is the big one that they make changes on last year's production. They usually wait for those changes in production to make any big, big changes on demand. Uh, on this report on Thursday, We'll be looking at South American production a little bit, maybe some small tweaks on on our demand side of the equation. But overall, I don't think this is going to be a big market moving report. Um, the real big report, the next one is in January. Between now and then, the main key here is South American weather and, again, export sales. And the two are very related, I think. You know, so <laughs> the report on Thursday, we'll get past that. And, you know, I mean, look, the USDA can – throw us for a loop. They've done it many times before. But again, generally speaking, this this December report is a non-event. Um, so, you know, we'll get past that and then we'll we'll key on South American weather, you know, end of year and, and what's happening with those export sales. Ted, we appreciate you jumping on our listeners. Also appreciate it. every time you do pop in. If they want to stay connected with you or ask you some of their own private questions, what's the best way for them to find you or uh, stay in touch? Yeah, absolutely. You can reach me at uh, 312-277-0113. That is my direct line. Um, you can also find us on the web at www.zaner.com. You can read a bit about us. You can read our bios. Uh, but you can also sign up for our Morning Eggheads newsletter, which is that uh, newsletter. It's not a recommendations letter. Um, and aside from that, as Delaney mentioned, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at the Ted Spread. Awesome. Thank you again. We much appreciate it. There we go, Delaney. Another great insight here on the Monday of a week, getting the market news out for our listeners right away. Should be a fun week. Got some more interviews to share with our listeners. They can always chase us down on our social media, right? Absolutely. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Tanner, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.